monograms, motifs, brand logos, whatever you want to call them, these are the lifeblood of luxury fashion houses. You know, that cheeky little double G Gucci logo that they put on nearly everything? I mean, it's on their shoes, their clothing, their handbags, their coats, the linings of their coats, literally everywhere. Well, those are actually the initials of their founder, Guccio Gucci. Fendi is another example. The two Fs, the initials of Eduardo Fendi. Double Cs, Coco Chanel, Cartier, Louis Francois Cartier. We all love them. We aspire to one day own something by one of these brands. But let me ask you a very important question. What compels you to want to wear someone else's initials and not your own? You're listening to Dresser, the podcast about luxury fashion and the forces that influence it. Although I had written this episode last in my series of eight episodes in season one, I feel like it's something that I need to address first. I would be remiss if I didn't do a completely separate episode about luxury fashion conglomerates because I I do think it's important in this conversation. Fashion is so attractive to me because of the power it wields on the world stage. I was initially attracted to the fashion world and in particular luxury fashion because it seemed to fuel the soul and totally not to be dramatic at all. But when I say that it feeds the soul, I really do mean it. When I look at a pair of shoes or a print that someone made or a bag or an item of clothing, I can really see the artistry and creativity that went into imagining such a piece. It's, it's, it's a physical extraction of someone else's self-expression. To me, the allure of fashion puts intangible ideas like love, adventure, lust, envy, betrayal, all these really intense and hard-to-define human emotions into tangible goods. The craftsmanship and attention to detail is is really what makes me proud to own a luxury item and, and the stories behind them. And when I'm lucky enough to purchase a luxury piece, albeit, you know, small, on sale, whatever, to me it's luxury and I cherish it. But my mindset has really been changing as I've been writing and researching this podcast Today, you could make a very strong argument that luxury fashion isn't about feeding the soul anymore. It's devolved into an unrecognizable beast, the bottom line being profit. Many of the biggest names in luxury fashion that you think about, Gucci that I mentioned at the top of the episode, Dior, Prada, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Hermes, Celine, all these brands that... (laughs) I dreamed about owning something from are old and steeped in lots of heritage. Heritage being one of the biggest unique selling points of the brand, as well as unparalleled quality, or so we've been told. (laughs) Many of these fashion houses were owned by the craftsmen who created them, or it was passed down to a family member. 
really humble businesses at the start. Quantities were limited because their clientele was limited. Oftentimes, things were made to order. Delayed satisfaction was a big part of luxury fashion back in the day. You couldn't have it wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. I mean, imagine a world (laughs) where that was the case. It's crazy. You had to wait. Luxury fashion houses sold to to the aristocrats or people like the Vanderbilts, not people like me. (laughs) It was super exclusive. Like, really, it was really exclusive. And all of that began to change in the mid to late 80s when a series of businessmen began buying up all of these companies from their founders or their founders' children. The new audience became basically anyone who could scrape up the money to buy something from them. They didn't really care, i.e. poor-ass people like me, (laughs) all the way up to People like the president or the first lady of the United States of America. A huge range of people. And to shift the perspective of who can buy and wear luxury fashions, the businessmen started to saturate the marketplace. They opened thousands of stores across the globe so that it was accessible to basically anyone. They launched outlets to sell extras. They advertised like crazy. And when the internet became a thing, and when iPhones became a thing, they launched e-commerce. And they launched a mobile-first platform to hawk goods at everyone. And as a result, these companies soon saw profits, literally, I'm not even kidding, like in the billions To get an idea of how drastic the growth was, I'm going to play a clip by Dana Thomas, the author of Do Lux. In 1977, Louis Vuitton was a family-owned business with two stores, Paris and Nice, both which they'd had for about 100 years, that did $12 million a year in sales. Today, Louis Vuitton is a publicly traded corporation with 370 stores, and last year did $3 billion a year in sales. That figure was from 2006, which, believe it or not, oh my gosh, that was 16 years ago. I mean, time flies, geez. In 2021, that figure is so much higher, hovering around $75 billion, billion dollars. And of course, you know, that figure is not just for Louis Vuitton, it's for the conglomerate, which I will speak about now. So who owns these brands? Who are these conglomerates that I speak about? You've heard of individual brands like Fendi and Miu Miu. Obviously, you're probably into fashion if you're listening to this. But have you heard of LVMH, Richmond, Caring, Luxottica? Culty. These are luxury conglomerates. In fact, the top 10 largest fashion conglomerates took home over half of the market share in 2019. That's crazy. I mean, think of all the fashion stores that you know about. The largest 10 took home over half of the market share 
I'm blown away. And so it's worth speaking about. And listener be warned, when I kind of find out about my favorite brands being owned by these conglomerates, my soul was a little bit crushed. So step with caution. I'm going to break some hearts here. LVMH stands for Louis Vuitton Monet Hennessy. I'm so sorry to all my LV lover girls out there. Your favorite company is in fact an obese conglomerate. And that's not the short of it. There's so much more. Just let it happen. It's, it's better if you know the truth than to live eyes wide shut. Okay, get ready. LVMH owns Hennessy, Dom Perignon, Stella McCartney, Marc Jacobs, Off-White, Birkenstock, Bulgari, Tiffany & Co., Sephora, Celine, Givenchy, Fendi, Dior, Ramoa. Are any of these your faves? Because I'm so sorry. If you're brave enough, I would really recommend Googling LVMH companies and you can find the whole depressing list there. There's actually 62 more brands than the ones that I just listed. And they're they're also really well known, which is what gets me. I mean, how can one company just dominate like that? Deep breaths, deep breaths, because we got to move on to Richmond. Richmond owns, oh my God, Cartier, Chloe, Netta Porter, and so many more. Caring owns Gucci, Saint Laurent, not Saint Laurent. I know. Alexander McQueen, Balenciaga, and so many more. Luxottica is basically the manu... Okay, no. It is. It's not basically. It is the manufacturer for every... And that's not an exaggeration. Every single luxury eyewear brand you can think of. Those Calvin Klein sunglasses, <laughs> Luxottica. Ray-Ban, Luxottica. Burberry sunglasses that cost, I don't know, $500, Luxottica. And it's not just sunglasses. They also do eyewear. And as a child who has worn glasses since she was in the third grade, why you got to do me dirty like that? I mean, it's so expensive. And I know it costs you like a nickel to make these frames, but you charging me $500. I don't understand America, explain! Every time I had to go to the optometrist as a child, I felt so bad for my parents because they had to fork over their entire paycheck, their arm, their their granddaddy's ashes, their car for me. It's ridiculous. Culty is one of the largest fragrance manufacturers, fragrance companies out there, and they own brands like Calvin Klein, their fragrance line. Burberry Beauty, Alexander McQueen, and so many more, so many more. Remember earlier when I was speaking about what initially attracted me to fashion and ideas like a brand's soul? Well, being a part of a conglomerate really affects the integrity of a brand's soul. Conglomerates are, quote, large parent companies made up of smaller independent entities that may operate across multiple industries. For example, with LVMH, they operate in the fashion industry with Louis Vuitton. They operate in the liquor industry with Hennessy. They operate in the beauty industry with Sephora and, and Fendi Beauty. Each conglomerate's subsidiary businesses run independently of other business divisions, 
Fenty Beauty runs separate from Hennessy, which runs separate from Louis Vuitton. But the subsidiaries' managers report to the senior management of the parent company. Louis Vuitton reports to LVMH. Fenty Beauty will report to LVMH as well, and the same goes with Hennessy. Now, I kind of took some of that verbiage from Investopedia, but I gave you the example of LVMH to hopefully give you a better picture of kind of what a conglomerate is. All of these conglomerates are publicly traded, which means they are beholden to their stockholders. And what do stockholders want? Profits. And it's a hungry beast that can never be satiated. Trust me. Every three months, they want to beat profits from the previous quarter until, until infinity, basically. So logic dictates that to increase profits quarter after quarter, you have to either decrease costs or increase the price. And surprise, prize, these luxury fashion houses have done both. One personal example of price hikes that I can give is regarding the classic Chanel flap. I have been eyeing the Chanel classic flap since I was a freshman in college. Specifically, the medium classic flap in caviar leather and gold hardware. To me, the Chanel classic flap represented the ultimate luxury. The square quilting on the Chanel bag will always line up. The leather chain... You could wear it either long or short. You can style it up. You can style it down. It goes with literally everything. And most importantly, it's timeless. However, since 2016, when I first started eyeing the bag, the price of the Chanel Classic flap has gone up way past inflation. So here are some figures. In 2016, the price was $4,900. An arm and a leg, for sure. Today at the time of the writing of this episode, the price is at least $13,000. I mean, gobsmacked. Forget about it. Forget about it. I can never afford a bag priced that much, (laughs) especially knowing the fact that just six years ago, it was less than half that price. So you won't ever see me wearing a Chanel classic flat because no, just no. (laughs) So that's what I would call price gouging, but it makes sense. Even though these luxury fashion houses want to make more money, they still want to portray their product as expensive and exclusive. But goddamn, you don't have to charge five figures for an item. I hate to say this, but I think the reason why Chanel is now charging five figures for their bags is because they're trying to become like Hermes, the upper, upper echelons of luxury fashion. They are notorious for having customers go into the store thinking that they're going to buy a bag, but then end up coming home with a scarf. And they keep coming back for more because there's just an ultra- air of exclusivity when it comes to Hermes that is different from any other luxury fashion brand out there. And I think it's because people who own Hermes take pride in the fact that they knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who could get them top of the list 
for, I don't know, a Birkin bag, which by the way, I think is super ugly. I don't know why people pay thousands of dollars for a Birkin. Trust and believe though that people will put up with the BS and also fork over thousands of dollars for the so-called ugly ass Birkin. Now, this episode, I've been really kind of bashing a lot of luxury brands because I really don't think that they are allowed to call themselves luxury. However, I do believe that Chanel and Hermes are two brands that are kind of worthy of that name. I'm going to be doing whole dedicated episodes for these brands a little later on, but I guess just hold on to that kernel of opinion until then. So we talked about price hiking, which Hermes and Chanel are the kings and queens of doing that. (laughs) Let's talk about the other way that conglomerates increase profits, and that is cutting costs. Take the company Valentino. They produce their products in Italy as well as developing countries like Cairo, Egypt. It just sort of depends on where they're shipping their suits to. If they're shipping their suits to countries with less strict provenance laws, mostly European nations, they will make their suits in Egypt because it's cheaper, get them shipped to a warehouse in Italy where then they will rip out the tags that say made in Egypt and then ship them out to the stores. For countries with more stricter provenance laws like Japan and America, I was really surprised to see America there. Usually Europe does better than we do, but in this case, not so. They will produce their suits in Italy with the made in Italy tags. And the most important bit of information is that in 2005, two years after starting this practice, Valentino finally turned a profit. As you can see, we have a little theme here. Perceived quality is more important than real quality. When we see a product that is made in America or made in Switzerland or most commonly in the luxury fashion industry, made in Italy, we perceive the product to be of a much higher quality. First of all, the made in is purely a marketing tool and it plays off of our internal xenophobia. We perceive the made in moniker insert blank westernized country to be of superior quality, to be more desirable than the made in China, for example. That is our own perception, clouding our judgment. However, the reality is far different. If luxury goods were made in China or made in Britain, it shouldn't make a difference. I mean, human hands are human hands, whether they be Chinese, Indian, or British or Italian. Like, Italians don't have six fingers. The last time I checked, it's not like they can make leather goods better than the Chinese can. If it's luxury, then it should be made with luxury standards, and I'm assuming you can train anybody of any nationality to do that. As I explained, it really doesn't make a difference, and because many of the luxury fashion houses we think of today are heritage-based, they have to make the consumer think that it is made in their home country 
and that because it is, it's somehow better. Interestingly, though, American companies like Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren don't have that same issue because they're a lot newer. So all that information aside, I want to take you back to Italy for one second. There's this amazing documentary on DW's YouTube channel called Luxury, Behind the Mirror of High-End Fashion. It has since been taken down from YouTube, but I will link to my website, dresserpodcast.com, where you can watch the full documentary for free. I highly recommend it. It was probably taken down from YouTube because it's really damning against the industry. And I will do my very best to summarize some of the most compelling pieces of evidence from that documentary. Under the firing line were companies like Max Mara, Gucci, and Prada, three really well-known Italian luxury fashion houses with seemingly great reputations. Many of these companies make much of their profit in leather goods. The figure can fluctuate from company to company, but the general trend in the industry is something around 70% of profits come from leather goods. And you don't have to be a mathematician to kind of work out that billions of dollars in profit, if 70% of that is coming from leather goods, then that industry is highly, highly important to them. And it's also worth exploring. So how are these so-called luxury items being mass produced? All these bags come from skilled Italian craftsmen, right? Because naturally, only Italians know how to make leather goods and nobody else. These companies are playing off of your xenophobia by having you believe that this is true. Luxury fashion wants you to believe that they are better than the rest because their goods come from Italy and are made by the hands of Italians. But think about it. Much of Italy's population today is now college-educated. A college-educated person doesn't really want to be doing what their parents did a generation earlier and work in the same factories that their parents and that their grandparents worked in because it's grueling work and the pay is low and it's not very prestigious at all despite the fact that, I don't know, luxury fashion wants you to kind of believe that it's this sort of glamorous industry. But it's really not. To take a cow a live animal and turn it into usable leather that will eventually go to the manufacturers that sew it together into a handbag or a pair of shoes. It's a long, environmentally detrimental and very labor-intensive process. So let's fall back a little and go down the supply chain rabbit hole and kind of see how these fashion houses source the leather and what the process is really like behind their glossy veneer. So the first step, obviously, the cow needs to be killed and the hides are then sent to factories that will extract the fur, stop the decaying process, dry it, sanitize it, tan it, and make it softer, so on and so forth. There's like a billion other steps I'm skipping, but you can probably tell that's a lot of chemicals involved. And once the leather is sort of in the final stage where it's ready to go, ready to be sewn up into a handbag or a pair of shoes or a wallet, they get sent to someone called an exporter. 
the exporter is the only person in the leather supply chain who is in direct contact with the luxury fashion houses. All the people involved in the extraction of the fur and sanitization of the leather are not in contact with the luxury fashion houses. Instead, they sign a contract with the exporter. So even though the exporter is following the code of conduct set forth by the luxury fashion houses, their subcontractors most definitely are not. Let me illustrate. Many of the workers in every stage of the leather process are not Italians, but illegal immigrants, Senegalese. Because of their illegal status, they can be exploited in every which way. And I'm going to give you a few of the most horrific examples that happen every single day to these Senegalese workers. They often get hired on short-term contracts. So a day, a week, a month at a time. And of course, they can get fired at any time. So the job security is definitely not there. Safety becomes second to profits. Grueling work hours. I'm talking like 20 hours a day. No bathroom breaks. Oftentimes, workers have to even buy their own safety equipment. And they get worked overtime with no extra pay, obviously, when they are sleepy or tired. And they are operating very dangerous machinery. And many times, the greedy bosses will not even pay their workers at all. And they'll just have to take it because they're illegal immigrants. What are they going to do? There's no legal recourse for these people. And it makes you think, how can it be conscionable to sell bags or leather goods or wallets or gloves, whatever they're selling for two, three, ten thousand $10,000 and you don't even acknowledge that the workers who supply your raw materials are being treated like animals right at your doorstep. This is, this is Italy. All of this is happening in Italy and nobody cares. Nobody cares because it's cheap and they're selling their handbags and they're making billions. I mean, who can come up with a good transition after that really depressing topic that I can't believe is happening? But I'm going to switch gears a little and talk about the luxury fashion houses themselves. I kind of want to talk about corporate life. Having creative directors is probably one of the most important driving forces of success. Designs that are truly from the soul. However, today, designers get hired, sacked, rehired, then fired, and hired by different brands, and then fired from those brands at dizzyingly fast paces. And this is because the big brands already have brand recognition and can sort of coast off of their past successes while simultaneously pumping out new soulless products. John Galliano is a really well-known fashion designer. In 1995, he worked for Givenchy, making a couture collection. The following year, in 1996, he was the chief designer at Dior. How can you design from the soul if you're hopping from brand to brand, like year after year after year? You're like one foot in, one foot out. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I want to illustrate my point even further by giving an inverse example. Sometimes that can help. 
Instead of talking about a very well-established brand like Dior, I want to talk about how Abercrombie was able to conquer the 18 to 22 market. Now, we can all agree that it was a terrible brand that literally built itself up by putting minorities and fat people down. But we also have to look within ourselves and answer to the fact that it was a huge success and we all made it a huge success. And the reason why it was so successful, in my opinion, was because of their aesthetic. I mean, the clothes were not special at all. They were just plain white t-shirts most of the time. But because of the mystique that they built up around the brand, it took off. Now, Abercrombie was a brand that was founded in 1892, and it was primarily a hunting and outdoorsy brand that was really struggling. Up until kind of, I would say, the mid-90s, they started to change up their aesthetic. And to first start up again, essentially, you have to have a really clear brand identity and a strong creative force to power your success. The aesthetic they came up with was hot young men in black and white. That's it. It was on their shopping bags, uh, their marketing materials. It was everywhere. They even had hot men greeting shoppers in the store. <laughs> you know, that jockey, white guy kind of look. And all of it was the aesthetic of Bruce Weber, who is a very famous photographer. We're not going to go into the fact that he's kind of really creepy and a little bit of a pedophile, but the point I'm trying to make is that one creative force, having one true creative vision is super important for brands. And when creative directors are looking at their next gig, hopping ship year after year, it doesn't feel authentic to me. And that is precisely what is happening in the luxury fashion sphere. So to summarize, if these products are not high quality and additionally they cost an arm and a leg and the designs are also soulless, why do we have the desire to purchase them? Luxury products have become less about the product itself and more about what they represent. So does luxury fashion even exist anymore? Are there people who have the desire to truly produce the best products they can possibly produce? Let me revise that idea. If a company like Topshot says they want to produce the best jeans they can, that statement would be false. A more accurate statement is Topshop wants to make the best jeans within reason. However, if a luxury fashion house were to say the exact same thing, I want to produce the best jeans I can. I would expect them to pull out all of the stops to produce the best that money can buy because that is what luxury is. But they don't. They don't. One small brand that I believe actually does this is a fashion brand called STHR. They make some of the most beautiful articles of clothing that are very thoughtfully designed and of extremely high quality, as far as I can tell. Obviously, I cannot afford to purchase something, but <laughs> from their website, I noticed that they are made to order. Oh, that kind of harkens back to the old times of luxury fashion. In particular, 
the item that really caught my eye was called the spotlight dress. It's made from 100% silk. Not a polyester lining, but 100% silk through and through. That's a great sign for me. I want to emphasize that luxury is not about consumerism or soaring profits. Luxury should be about products that are designed from the soul, not designed for what will sell. They should be made with love and passion, and there should be the utmost integrity held when they are eventually purchased by the customer. I once had an English teacher in high school who said, life is only about two things, truth and beauty. Now, throughout season one of this podcast, I will be going through the stories of some of your favorite luxury fashion houses. Despite the fact that yes, there is a layer of capitalism corrupting everything, I still want to be able to recognize the beauty behind each brand story, but all the while, I also hope to uncover some hidden truths. Join me on season one of Dresser. Thank you so much to everyone who made it this far. This was the first episode I've ever done. It's super exciting for me. I hope to to continue this in the future and um, hopefully I'll get better at it as well. Of course, my inbox is open for any questions or comments that you may have. Every episode is written and produced by me, Michelle Chang, and you can find all of the books, movies, articles, all that good stuff on my website, dresserpodcast.com. Each episode also has its full-length transcript online, so if you prefer reading over listening, you can go to it there. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at dresserpodcast. I'm on IG at Michelle Z Chang. And please, if you could, share this episode with a friend. You know, I do this podcast in my free time and spreading the word really helps me out so much. If you don't have any friends, like, I mean, that's totally possible. Like I had no friends for a good portion of my adult life. Trust me, please give this a five-star rating. It makes all the work that goes into creating this totally worth it. Next time, we're going to take a look at the very important brand, Prada. So fashion your seatbelts. Now, onto my fashion trimmings. Now, I call it fashion trimmings because when designers create a vision of theirs, they work from a square piece of fabric. And obviously, we're not squares. And so a bunch of fabric gets tossed to the side unused. But of course, you can still create something beautiful with excess fabric that may not necessarily go into the creation of your main event, that main dress. And so this, the fashion trimmings are really pieces of last minute thoughts I had or excess pieces of knowledge slash nuggets of wisdom that I maybe didn't feel like really worked with the main episode, but I still felt like I needed to include. Some fashion trimmings are longer than others. Some are just short little blurbs, but I hope you enjoy nonetheless. So here are my fashion trimmings. Now, I know capitalism is kind of the favorite thing to hate for millennials and Gen Zers, and I I do hate it, but there are also 
a lot of redeeming qualities to capitalism. Some of the bonuses of automation or large-scale production are baffling and wonderful. Take pineapples. Super random, I know, but I was talking about it with my manager at work the other day, and, and I wanted to talk about it here. The pineapple was once a highly treasured item and more expensive than gold, actually, because of their rarity. They had to be grown in certain environments. They took years to mature, and they had to be shipped from the colonies to places like Europe, thousands of miles away. And today, they can be mass-produced on such a large scale that anyone in the world has access to a pineapple, basically, if they wanted to. And it's also cheap. And that's an amazing thing. Another example of capitalism sort of being a little bit more redeeming is is with Toyota Corolla. It's one of the best-selling car models in the entire world. And it's amazing that a company is able to mass produce this car with such expert precision and uniformity. There's so many parts that go into a car and they're able to make it the same every single time. And no matter where you go to buy the Toyota Corolla, whether it's in Southern California where I live or in middle of nowhere, Maine, it's the same everywhere. And that's an amazing thing. However, luxury fashion was never meant to be a pineapple or a common sedan. When these companies scaled up, they gained all the things that Dole Foods or Toyota gained, but they lost their soul along the way. It's not completely lost though. Many of the luxury fashion houses that I picked on in this episode have made-to-order departments. For example, Louis Vuitton has a made-to-order department. This means that you can give them your specifications. Say you want a unique handbag made. You can give them the color you want, the material they want you to make it in, maybe a monogram, maybe a specific type of leather trim, and they will take all of that and make it tailor-made just for you. And I think as long as luxury fashion houses have made-to-order departments, things that truly feel luxury and made from the soul, these luxury fashion houses still have a chance in my eyes. They themselves still have a soul left within them. Thank you so much.